Good evening, everyone. My name is Dr. Claire Lachlan Chow. I'm academic registrar at Gresham College, and I'm delighted to welcome you here tonight to this Gresham College lecture. I'd like to let you know that tonight's lecture forms part of the Science Museum's LATES program. Tonight's LATES theme celebrates the opening of Science 1550 to 1800, the Lindbury Gallery. So do go and have a look around outside afterwards. Dr. Fair is currently working on a book about Sir Isaac Newton's final three decades in London. And her lecture this evening focuses on that, entitled Arise Sir Isaac, Newton's London Career. Please join me in welcoming her. Well, thank you very much, Claire, and thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Um, this talk is going to be quite closely related to the wonderful Science City Gallery upstairs. It's on the second floor. So if you haven't been there already, I strongly recommend you to go afterwards. And this picture of Isaac Newton is the one that's on display in the gallery upstairs. And it's a very good example of how well, understood, well Isaac Newton understood the power of pictures for promoting his own image. You can, he paid for it himself. He donated it to the Royal Society. And you can see that gold lettering across the top. And the gold lettering says in Latin, Sir Isaac Newton, he was uh, made president of the Royal Society in 1703. And then in Latin, it's got the word equis, which means knight, because he'd been knighted by Queen Anne. And that was something that he was very proud of. And for the last three decades of, uh, of his life, when he lived in London, which is what I'm going to be talking about, for most of that time, he was not only president of the Royal Society, but he also directed the Royal Mint. So he was very influential on the national economy. And over there is one of the houses that he lived in, which has now been demolished, but was near Leicester Square. So his life divides quite neatly into three different sections. He never went abroad. He basically stayed in that sort of bottom corner of England. So he was born in Woolsthorpe and went to school uh, nearby in Grantham. So that was in Lincolnshire. And he was there roughly the first 20 years of his life. Then the next 30 odd years, he was in Cambridge, apart from a couple of interludes when he went back to Woolsthorpe during the plague. And then for the last three decades of his life, he lived in London. And that's a period that biographers usually skip over. And it's, very little has been written about it, and that's why I decided to write a book. So judging from the number of portraits that Isaac Newton commissioned, he was really quite a vain man. Whoops, vain man. These are just two of them. So this is the first one. They're both by Godfrey Neller, who became the painter to the king. He was one of the most expensive, prestigious uh, portrait painters in London. So this one on the left was painted a couple of years after Isaac Newton finished the Principia, his famous book on gravity. So he still lived in Cambridge. You can see he, he's not wearing a wig. That's his own hair. He went prematurely grey. It's a very dark, sombre picture. He's got a very sort of thin, drawn face. And it's a sort of traditional picture of melancholic, reclusive genius. A few years later, he moved to London. Same artist, same man, very different picture. You can see he's put on quite a lot of weight, which suggests that he enjoyed a good lifestyle in London. But he's also got a very, very elaborate wig. 
and a fine shirt, and he's wearing a, a, a robe in red velvet. And red crimson was the colour of royalty, and it was his favourite colour. The Victorian scientists absolutely hated this painting. They liked the first one. They did not like this one. And they said it's an affected representation of Newton the Dandy, the prosperous man of the world with a carriage and horses and three male and three female servants. And they didn't want to think about Newton like that. But I, not a Victorian, and I have no qualms about thinking about this cosmopolitan man about town. And that's the version of Newton that I'd like to present to you this evening. So he moved to the Tower. The Royal Mint was in the Tower. And he moved in 1696. And by then, he'd already been trying for several years unsuccessfully to move out of Cambridge. And finally, he ended up here. And see, uh, the Tower then was quite an isolated sort of fortress. There was no Tower Bridge. So it's quite difficult to get to, except by boat. And you can see it's, the Thames is flowing in front. London was the centre of a global trading market. So there's all the ships that are bringing in gold from Africa, that are bringing in luxury goods from Asia, especially from China and India, and also taking uh, our exported goods away to sell in exchange. He didn't like being in the tower. He found it very uncomfortable. There was a large zoo, so I imagine the roaring of the lions kept him awake at night. There was also the army, uh, the office of ordnance was based there, so there were a lot of soldiers. The mint machinery was very noisy, and it was an unfashionable part of London. So after he'd been there for a few months, he moved out and then occupied various different houses. And by living in the more fashionable, accessible part of London, um, it meant that he could show experiments there. He could host a lot of very prestigious international visitors. And when you go up to the gallery upstairs, you'll see that air pump on the left. Uh, is by, uh, built by a man called Francis Hawkesby, who's the curator of experiments at the Royal Society. And you can see it upstairs in a recreated uh, meeting, imaginary meeting at the Royal Society. But he also used his own house for entertaining visitors, for carrying out experiments. And as he, he said, he arranged for it to be the air pump to be brought round to his house so that I can get some philosophical persons to see his experiments who will otherwise be difficultly got together. His original study in the house that I just showed you has been recreated in an American uh, business college. Um, so the house was demolished at the beginning of the 20th century, and this is the original wooden panelling, and you can see fine red crimson velvet curtains uh, in front of the windows. And it's a very eerie experience going to look, look at this, because it's right in the middle of nowhere in, the, in Massachusetts, and you go into this business college, and you go up in a lift, you go up to the third floor, and then you cross the corridor, and you open the door, and suddenly you're in the early 18th century. And this is what it looks like, and you can see it's a very affluent, comfortable-looking study. And I drew up this table of, um, of wealth at death. And, I mean, it's very difficult to make direct comparisons of the money at the beginning of the 18th century with values now, So, which is why I put in other figures so you can see sort of roughly how much Newton was worth. And he's third on my list. So the two who beat him, uh, Hans Sloan, very, very wealthy collector, and David Garrick, the actor. But you can see he was roughly twice at 32,000, which is several million now. 
Uh, he was twice as wealthy as Handel, far wealthier than the chemist Robert Boyle, Alexander Pope, Samuel Johnson, and the astronomer Royal. So I just put that up as an indication of how wealthy he was when he died, because he has the reputation of being very frugal, of living a very Spartan life, of not having much money. But when he lived in London, he earned a lot from his salary at the Mint. And also every coin that was minted, he got a bonus as well. So he became quite wealthy. When he died, the inventory of his possessions covered a, a long scroll of vellum that was 17 feet long. So you, the, the inventory's there, you can read through it. Um, he's got 100 drinking glasses, 90 china plates, a whole collection of silver cutlery, silver candle snuffers, silver sword stashed away in the stables. And then he had the ultimate Georgian luxury, two silver chamber pots. <laughs> and amongst his other possessions, he commissioned uh, portraits, but he also commissioned this ivory bust. And David Le Marchand was a, hung, um, a Huguenot, uh, Huguenot sculptor. He was, again, he was one of the most expensive, the most prestigious in London. He sculpted busts of royalty, but Newton commissioned several busts and plaques himself. And you can see on the left the picture of Le Marchand when he had his own paper, uh, own portrait painted by Highmore. It was Newton's bust that he chose to be holding, and it's now at the British Library. So these are just some of the very expensive goods that were on uh, Newton's inventory. And he wasn't alone in buying very expensive things for his house like this. This was a time of rampant consumption. People were, were buying to display their wealth and furnishing their houses well and dressing very well. So Joseph Addison, um, the, on the uh, journalist on The Spectator and the essayist wrote that London had become an emporium for the whole earth. The single dress of a woman of quality is often a product of a hundred climates. The scarf is sent from the torrid zone, the brocade petticoat rises out of the mines of Peru, and the diamond necklace out of the bowels of Indostan. If you remember that picture I showed you of the tower with all the ships bringing all the goods in and out of London. So I put a little picture on the right to show the, these children dressed in their very, very fine clothes. And the picture... It's actually an extract from this larger picture, which is by William Hogarth, which was painted four years after Newton died. And it's called The Indian Emperor or the Conquest of Mexico, as performed in the year 1731 in Mr. Conduit's Master of the Mint before the Duke of Cumberland, etc., Act 4, Scene 4, 1732. So that refers to the four children on the stage who are performing a play. And I'll show you the picture rather larger uh, because I'm going to use this picture to structure the rest of the talk. So it's a very Newtonian picture. The more you look at it, the more one realizes that. So for example, there's a bust of Newton up on the mantelpiece and he's sort of staring out over the whole assembly. And at the front in the middle, you can see a woman bending down. That's one of the royal governesses. And her daughter has dropped her fan because her fan has fallen under the power of Newtonian gravity. And that's quite the sort of typical uh, Hogarthian visual pun. You can see that the audience 
is made up of royalty and of aristocrats watching their own children. And these are the sort of social circles that Newton moved in while he lived in London. And so he had many acquaintances who were rich and powerful, and he also knew women as well as, the, as men, whereas most of the biographies just have focus on the men that he knew. So I'm going to use this picture to divide the talk into three parts, the room, the audience, and the stage. So I'm going to start with the room, and if you look up on the top left, there's two portraits, one above the other, and the one at the top is a man, and that's John Conduit, who owns the house, and who succeeded um, Newton as Master of the Mint, and he was married to the woman hanging just below, who was Newton's niece. So there's one picture of Conduit up there, and this is the only other surviving portrait of John Conduit. It's on a, a coin. He succeeded Newton as Master of the Mint. So this is a coin that was produced at the Mint, a medal that was produced at the Mint after he died. And you see he appears on the on left. You can see he's sort of looking like a well-fed Roman emperor. And then on the right, um, he's, be, he's in um, the Elysian Fields, and he's being presented to two people who were there already, Isaac Newton, but also John Hamden, who's a Civil War hero who symbolised the rights of Parliament. Because this is very much a sort of political figure. Uh, Newton was very known for his Whig allegiance, and he very much supported the Glorious Revolution of 1688 when William and Mary um, displaced the Stuart the Catholic dynasty. So politics played a very large part in Newton's life, and twice he was Member of Parliament for Cambridge University. And going back to the picture, Conduit owned the plaque. Beneath Newton's bust on the, mantel, uh, on the mantelpiece, there's a marble plaque, and it's copied from the plaque here at the bottom of Newton's monument in Westminster Abbey, which is still there. And it was Conduit who, when Newton died, Conduit paid for this monument and designed it and uh, commissioned it. And when, that's what it looks like now, but this is what it looked like when it was originally installed before that 19th century decorative screen was put there. And now, when you go to Westminster Abbey, you come on some tourist route, but originally you came in by the west door and there was Newton on the left right in front of you in a very prominent place. And this was the beginning of a new use for Westminster Abbey, of sort of converting it into a shrine for Enlightenment genius. And it was packed with Whig heroes, and Newton was one of the first to be commemorated there. Because previously, the Westminster, Westminster Abbey had been reserved for all the saints and the monarchs who were behind the altar with its sort of Gothic stone statues. And then during the 18th century, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of marble classical statues commemorating Whig intellectuals such as Isaac Newton. And it's one of a pair. You can see there's Newton on the left and um, Stanhope on the right, who was a military hero. So you've got uh, contemplative virtue on the left and active virtue on the right. So it's easier actually to see the monument on this picture, which is how it is now with all this tracery. And you can see that's Newton, again looking like a Roman, and he's got his elbow on four books. And when you look at the spines of the books, you can see their titles. And two of them, those titles, are the titles that you would expect, gravity and optics. And the other two, though, are theology and chronology. 
And for the last 10 years of his life, when John Conduit knew him, theology and chronology were the subjects that Isaac Newton was most interested in. And after he died, Conduit gathered all his papers together and published a book, one on each of those subjects. So this wasn't an unusual thing to do. For 18th century people, the timelines of ancient history, interpreting the Bible, were both very central and important intellectual endeavors. So I'll start by just talking a bit about ancient chronology. So you can see the celestial globe um, at the top, above Newton's head. There's some celestial globes in the exhibition upstairs. And what it is, it's an imaginary globe that if there was somebody standing in the middle of the globe, that is how they would see the stars on the outside. So they're always paired with terrestrial globes. And you see there's Urania at the top, sort of draped on top. She's a muse of astronomy. And that's absolutely typical that a woman is a goddess of astronomy or mathematics or reason or truth or something like that. But she's not, women weren't actually allowed to practice. They just symbolize uh, the different disciplines. And one of the striking things about that celestial globe is that the constellations on it represent how the constellations were at the time of the voyage of the Argonauts, which is something that uh, Newton was very interested in, and he redated it by several centuries, because he could use his astronomical expertise, obviously to predict eclipses and planetary alignments that there were going to be in the future, but he could also work out when they'd happened in the past. And then he could correlate that information with documentary evidence and accounts of things that had happened. And that was how he was able to revise the timelines. And he researched and modified the histories of ancient dynasties from the Persians right up to Alexander the Great. And however arcane that might seem now, at the time, it was a seen as a really, really important project. So Edward Gibbon, obviously most famous for uh, writing about the Roman Empire, put the name of Newton raises the image of a profound genius, luminous and original. His system of chronology would alone be sufficient to assure him immortality. So he thought this was a very important enterprise. He was also very, very interested in analysing the Bible. His, he, had, he owned about 10 or 15 Bibles, but one of them is at Trinity College Library, and when you look at it, you can see how well-thumbed it is, especially in the book of Daniel, where some of the corners of the pages have been turned down. And he was particularly interested in Solomon's Temple, and this is his own drawing of Solomon's Temple. And what he thought was, what he and many other people believed was that if he could work out the dimensions of Solomon's temple, then he would know how God had designed the entire cosmos. Because he believed that, that Solomon's temple was like a sort of microcosm of the entire universe. And as he put it, temples were anciently contrived to represent the frame of the universe as the true temple of the great God. He, he believed that the whole universe, uh, God fills the whole universe, so the whole universe is a temple to God, just like Solomon's temple. So going back to my Hogarth picture now, um, Catherine Barton is the woman in the oval frame underneath Conduit, and she came to London when she was about 17. She was the daughter of Newton's half-sister, younger half-sister, 
and she came and lived in this house and other houses. And her role is rather unclear, uh, but she seems to have acted as a housekeeper for him. Um, uh, he supported her financially. They were certainly very close. She and her husband, John Conduit, were with Newton very frequently, particularly during the last years of his life. And they were with him when he died. And one indication of how close they were and how often they were together is that there aren't any letters between them, which is very frustrating because when you live with someone, you don't send them a letter. But she got smallpox and she got sent off into the countryside. So there's one letter. This is the only letter. And it, the end of it is, pray let me know by your next how your face is and if your fever be going and perhaps warm milk from the cow may help to abate it. I am your very loving uncle, Isaac Newton. And she was very lucky. I don't know whether it was the warm milk, but she man her face was unscarred because that was a great uh, problem that uh, smallpox, if you didn't die of it, left you um, with terrible scars on your face. She was a very close friend of the Earl of Halifax. The Earl of Halifax was an extremely influential Whig politician. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he helped to found the Bank of England. And it was common knowledge that the two of them, Catherine Barton and the Earl of Halifax, were having an affair. But there were also a lot of... Um, uh, there, were, there was a lot of gossip circulating about that, and it's very difficult now to be exactly sure what was true and what was just gossip and what did happen and what didn't happen. What is certain is that it was Halifax who, it, who landed the job at the Mint for Isaac Newton. So he wrote to Newton while he lived in Cambridge, the king has promised me to make Mr. Newton warden of the Mint. The office is the most proper for you. It is a chief officer in the Mint. It is worth five or six hundred a year. Let me see you as soon as you come to town that I may carry you to kiss the king's hand. And Isaac Newton took the next carriage down to London. Within a couple of weeks, he'd packed up everything in Cambridge, moved down to London, and taken over the Mint. What's unclear is whether Newton and Catherine Barton and Halifax all knew each other at this stage. And that, there's not much evidence either way. What is certain is that Halifax twice changed his will. Uh, so th in 1706, he left 3,000 pounds, huge amount of money, and all his jewels to Barton. And then uh, six years later, he changed it again, he left her a huge legacy and an annuity in recognition of the great esteem he had for her wit and her most exquisite understanding. So you can interpret that how you want. People interpret it in all sorts of ways. But what is certain is that Halifax made sure that Newton was knighted in Cambridge in 1705. And there was a very grand ceremony. Uh, there was a big dinner. This is the dining hall of Trinity College. It's a modern picture, but it probably looked pretty much like that. And all the way down the high street, going up, up to Trinity College, up Trinity uh, Street, the ways were all along strode with flowers. The bells rung and the conduits ran with wine. So Cambridge really sort of put on a great show. And Queen Anne was there and she was sitting up at high table and she had a special throne that was five foot high. And that's where Isaac Newton went to be knighted and he was pretty pleased about it. But this, it wasn't in recognition of his skills as a mathematician. It was because of his political activity, because he'd spent the last few months running again on behalf of Montague as a Whig representative for Cambridge University. He didn't get the seat, 
but he put in the effort and he did all the campaigning that was for that, that he was rewarded by um, Montague, the Earl of Halifax. It's very complicated. All these people have about six different names. So Montague is the Earl of Halifax. Right, so turning now to the audience in my three parts, I'm going to talk about two particular audience members. Uh, there's the one on the left, that's Prince William, and the one on the right is the prompter at the back of the stage. So I'll start with this one, Prince William. He was the son of Queen Caroline and King George II. Uh, they didn't become king and queen until just after Newton had died. So while Newton was alive, he was the Prince of Wales, and she was Princess Caroline, but she knew her, he knew her quite well. So while he was painting uh, this picture, um, Hogarth painted a, produced a separate portrait of Prince William, which is the one over there. Um, and he was about 10 or 12 at that stage. And, but the person that Newton knew better was uh, Princess Queen Caroline. William himself, he was terribly, terribly spoilt, but he was also quite bright. He was interested in science. He had a laboratory and a printing press, all his own, down in the basement of the palace. And Isaac Newton arranged for his friend Edmund Halley, Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet, to be his tutor. And this is a picture of Caroline that she herself commissioned. And you can see, if you, if you look next to her left foot, you can see two little cherubs and they're holding a cornucopia, and it's full of flowers, but it's also full, sounds a bit weird, but it's, it's got seven baby heads in it. And that's because Caroline was a very um, fertile woman. She had lots and lots of babies, and most of them survived. And that had been something that, under Queen Anne, everybody had been terribly worried about, that there, there wasn't someone to inherit the throne. So that was a sort of demonstration of her, of her worthiness to be the English queen, even though she was a Hanoverian. And at the top left, you can see two cherubs, and they're putting a laurel wreath on, and they're paying tribute to her intellectual abilities, um, because she was actually far smarter than her husband, George. And as soon as they came over from Hanover, she started attracting a big intellectual court about her because she realised that the Hanoverian monarchs were very unpopular in England. So she wanted to demonstrate very clearly her allegiance to this new country that she found herself in and the, the way that she was willing to sort of abandon Germany and relocate herself in London. So she was very interested in science and literature, theology. She was a very, very intelligent, well-educated woman, and she uh, came to know Newton fairly well. So this is one of the Newtonian instruments that she collected. It's called an orrery, and she put it in the Long Queen's Gallery, which is at Kensington Palace. And an orrery, this, this orrery, this very orrery itself, is now in the exhibition upstairs, which is why I decided to show it. And what it is, you put a candle in the middle of that flat table, and that represents the sun. And then there's a handle, and you turn the handle, and all the little miniature planets go round the sun in exactly the right sort of proportional timing as they really do in the universe. So a very, very clever uh, piece of mechanism and it's an absolutely beautiful and it's very very large it's about that big across and you can see it's got lovely 
horses' heads, in uh, golden horses' heads uh, around the outside. But it's like a lot of scientific instruments of this period. It doesn't actually, it's not an experiment. It's for demonstration, it's for teaching, it's for displaying the Newtonian universe. So Caroline collected this uh, sort of intellectual court around her, and it was in both her interests and Newton's interests to cultivate each other. It was good for him. He could go back to the Royal Society and say, oh, look, I'm really good friends with the Queen. And the Queen could say, look, I've got um, England's greatest uh, scientific hero is part of my court. And Newton was very pleased to discover that Caroline was interested not only in his scientific ideas, but in also in his theological ideas. And he was particularly pleased that she was willing to support him against his major enemy, Leibniz. So Caroline and Leibniz had known each other quite well at the Hanoverian court. And you probably know that Leibniz and Newton had a big controversy that went on for years about who invented calculus first. But they also were bitter enemies about the position of God in the universe. Newton believed very strongly that God is imminent, he's present throughout the universe for all eternity, and that he intervenes in its operation from time to time. And Leibniz famously said that Newton's God was an absolutely lousy watchmaker. Um, he couldn't even set the universe up to keep running on its own. He had to keep intervening to sort it out. So there's a huge theological difference of opinion about the role and nature of God. And Newton and Leibniz carried on this protracted row, and Caroline was supporting Leibniz, and she was very instrumental in pursuing the debate. So for help, she turned to Samuel Clarke, who was England's most famous theologian. And there was a long sort of three-cornered correspondence with um, Newton keeping very quiet in the background, but writing to Caroline, and, and Clarke would go and visit him, and they would talk, and then Caroline would uh, write to Leibniz. And eventually, this book was published. It's called the Leibniz and Leibniz Clark Correspondence, and it's the letters between them. But it's really a, a marvelous example of how influential women could be. Although she doesn't, Caroline's name doesn't appear on the title page, she was very much involved in sending the letters, in writing them. Everybody thought, assumed that Newton had written the letters, but actually Caroline played a very, very instrumental role. So it was a sort of three-cornered uh, creation. And the book was very important in England because it uh, was very, very effective propaganda for Newton to persuade everybody that Newton's view of God and the universe and gravity was correct. So that's Caroline. The second... Um, member of the audience I'm going to talk about is the man there. He's called Desaguliers, and he's a prompter. And that's why he's got the back to everybody. And he's also sort of peering into the script like that because he was very, very short-sighted. And he was... Um, he features very strongly in the Science City exhibition, and he was important in two main ways. One was that he was instrumental in some very important metropolitan engineering projects, and he also played a key role in promoting Newton and promoting Newton's ideas because he was Newton's experimental curator at the Royal Society. So in terms of engineering projects, 
as you'll see if you go upstairs, he played an important role in designing the new Westminster Bridge that was built in the middle of the 18th century, although unfortunately that involved knocking down his own house because he lived near Westminster and he had a school there. It was a Newtonian school and he attracted people from all over Europe and he lectured on Newtonian mechanics and he invented lots of Newtonian machines sort of engineering uh, which improved technology. So these are just two of them that's in the that are in the exhibition upstairs. The one on the left is a model, which he is a demonstration model for showing his students of a way of lifting water out of a well much more efficiently. And basically it involves a man endlessly running up and running up that ladder and then the, the, well, the bucket comes out of the well and then the poor man has to sort of run up and down the ladder again. But it meant that this man could lift up far more buckets of water than he could otherwise. And Desaguliers sa said that um, uh, five Englishmen could do the work of eight Frenchmen. That went down very well when he said that. And the thing on the right is called a cometarium, and it's a model for showing how the speed of the comets varies as they move around the sun, depending on how close um, they are to the sun. Desaguliers was chronically short of money, and so he sought patronage from the Queen, and one of his first royal commissions was to go to Hampton Court and entertain George I and the princess um, and the princess, prince and princess of Wales to entertain them with scientific experiments and demonst demonstrations. And they obviously went down very well because all three of the royal members of the family, um, sorry, all three members of the royal family subscribed to the book of lectures on experimental philosophy that was one of his first books. And as he went on, he became more successful. Newton noticed, noticed him and made him curator of experiments at the Royal Society. And Desaguliers was a very, very important disseminator of his ideas. And you see, this is one of his main philosophical uh, books, and he dedicated it to Isaac Newton. And you can see here on the left with um, the magnifying glass and the prism illustrate in particular his importance in disseminating ideas about Newtonian optics. Because Newton famously set up his experiments to show that Descartes was wrong and that the light, um, the light that comes from the sun already has all the colours of the spectrum in it, which is a view that Descartes, the French natural philosopher, disagreed with. But when people in France, in Paris, tried to replicate Newton's experiments, they pretty soon discovered that he hadn't really left very good instructions and they couldn't get the experiments to work. And so Desaguliers went over there, sorted out the experiments, got them to work and convinced them that Newton's view of optics was right. And the reason, well, one of the reasons why he went to Paris very often is because he was a leading Freemason. At one time, he was the Grand Master of English Freemasonry. And this is the sort of founding constitution of the Grand Masonic um, Lodge in London. And Desaguliers is in it. He's the man on the far right dressed in black. And at one stage, he was the Grand Master of um, the whole organisation. Hogarth 
was also a Freemason, and virtually all the men in the picture, the picture that I've been talking about, virtually all of them were Freemasons as well. Um, one of the uh, sort of main messages of the Science City exhibition upstairs is that science wasn't practiced just in laboratories or in universities. It was all over the city in all sorts of different buildings and different organizations. And this is the first lodge that was, uh, the first Freemasons lodge that was set up uh, in St. Paul's Church, near St. Paul's. And it, it seems to me there must have been a lot of scientific discussions happening here. So about a quarter of the Royal Society were Freemasons at one stage. Isaac Newton wasn't. I don't think that implies that there's any great ideological alignment between Freemasonry and science. I don't think Freemasonry particularly affected the content of scientific knowledge. On the other hand, a lot of discussions about science were happening in sort of meeting places like this and in coffee houses and in taverns um, all over London, not just in the meeting rooms of the Royal Society. And uh, Desargulier was constantly travelling around both England and Europe, and he always did several things at, things at once. He would go on Masonic business, he would show some experiments, he would do some teaching, he would uh, earn some money, I don't know, building an ornamental fountain or something like that. So he, he was doing many different things at the same time. And he was a very, very important Newtonian figure. So finally, I'll talk, to, uh, talk about the stage and the children on it, the four children there, are performing this play by John Dryden, uh, The Indian Empire. It's, it's about uh, the Spaniards arriving in Mexico. And it was about 70 years old by this stage, but it was a perennial uh, favourite with English audiences because Dryden very carefully showed the Spaniards as being very, very cruel and arrogant. So uh, all the English people in the audience could sit there very smugly and think sort of how wonderful they were by comparison. And several of the crucial speeches are about liberty, and liberty was a key Whig concept. And so although the play was quite old, it was still very relevant when reinterpreted for uh, the political situation in the early 18th century. It was, as the conquest of Mexico, as it suggests, it was about colonial exploitation. And this comes from the very, very first scene. There's two Spaniards, they've just arrived in Mexico, and one of them says, Methinks we walk in dreams on fairyland, where golden orb lies mixed with common sand. And then they go on a bit, and then they, then they interpret this wealth of having been placed there by God explicitly for Europeans to come and get it. Heaven from all ages wisely did provide, sorry, heaven from all ages wisely did provide this wealth and for the bravest nation hide, and then it goes on. But the, so the English were also trying to, to make money and find gold in the, um, in the South Americas. So it was only a few years before this play was performed on the, in the picture, before the picture was painted, that uh, the South Sea Company was set up. And this, is a part, uh, this map is part of their advertising material. And this is um, a trading card. Um, and they, they uh, promised investors in the South Sea Company that there would be enormous returns because of all the gold that would be brought back from South America to England. 
And the idea of uh, the stock market and investing was very new at that stage, and a lot of very gullible people lost a huge amount of money, including Isaac Newton. So this is a chart of the South Sea bubble. And Newton started out very sensibly. He invests, and then it goes up, and he sells. So he's made a profit, very sensible. Then he did the absolute classic. He watched it go up, and then he bought some more, and then he watched it go up, and then he watched it crash. And he lost the equivalent of about three million pounds in modern money. So uh, uh, some people managed to hold on to their money. A lot of people lost a lot of money. Uh, so instead of going for South America, the English decided they'd go to Africa instead. So this is a map from this period of West Africa. And I'm not sure how well you can see it, but the, um, just above the coastline, there's an area called Guinea. And then they've divided up the coast and they've labelled it not according to the African people who lived there. Uh, it's been labelled according to what English people can go and get. So in succession, there's the, um, the, the Grain Coast, the Gold Coast, and the Slave Coast. So Afri Africa is a sort of source of, uh, source of produce and people to, the, to benefit England. Of course, it formed a very important part of the triangular slave trade, where um, guns and material were coming from England to Africa. Gold was going back to England. Slaves, uh, enslaved people were going over to the Americas. And then sugar and tobacco, mainly, were coming back to Northwest Europe. And there's no evidence that Newton himself was actively involved in slave trade. But on the other hand, he did benefit from it indirectly through his investments, and also because he was involved with the Gold Coast, because he was in charge of all the gold coinage at the Mint. So this is an English guinea. It was, in, it was named... The guinea was originally a golden sovereign, and it was named after Guinea, the area that I've just shown you on the African map. And then uh, the value of gold rose, and it went, its value went up to about 30 shillings, and eventually its, its value was pegged at 21 shillings. And that's why those of you who are my, my age went through absolute agonies at primary school, convert, converting uh, 21 shillings into pounds and pennies and everything else. So that is a guinea... Um, Yeah, so that, so that was the guinea. And so at the Mint, Isaac Newton was responsible for producing guineas and producing all the other coins. And the Mint was based in the Tower of London. It was, it was in this sort of outer part between the fortifications. So it really was very, very cramped. And the Ordnance Office was in this big bit in the middle. And the Ordnance Office kept trying to take over the space that should have belonged to the royal mint. And that made life um, very, very difficult. But he took his position very, very, very seriously, that his predecessor had regarded it as the, the job as more or less as a sinecure. But Newton was determined to make, um, to make the whole thing very profitable. And he, he also he occupied the position that's sort of more or less equivalent to nowadays, to the governor of the Bank of England. So it was a very powerful position. He wasn't just responsible for producing coins. He was responsible for making economic decisions. So he was, he was an incredibly efficient manager, which meant that everybody who worked for him disliked him. 
And there aren't very many diagrams like this showing the machinery inside the mint because obviously it was, the machines were kept secret because they didn't want people to know exactly what was going on because they wanted to reduce forgery. Basically, you, you can see that these two men rotate that lever around and there, there's a big press that goes down. What's missing from this is that there should be a third man whose job is to put blank coins underneath the press so that they can, they can be stamped either with the head or with the, or, or with the reverse. Um, and you can imagine you have to be pretty nifty not to get your fingers squashed while you're putting the coins in and out. And he, Newton did lots of time and motion studies and he got these people producing more and more and more coins per hour. And the inset there on the right is um, a, a special type of machine for milling the edges of coins because before that, uh, coins had had smooth edges which made forgery very easy. And so Newton insisted that all the coins should have milled edges. So what happened in 1696 was the f his first job was to implement what was called the Great Recoinage. It wasn't, he personally didn't think it was a good idea, but everybody decided to do it, and so he was responsible. And you can see on the left an old silver coin, and coins used to be worth, uh, worth the same as the money in them. So a silver sovereign had a sovereign's worth of silver in it, in principle, except because they had smooth edges, uh, criminals called clippers used to come along and they used to slice, shave little bits off the edge, which they could then melt down, which meant that they could produce extra silver coins, but the actual physical value of the currency was gradually declining. And by 1696, it had got to a crisis situation. So all the coins in the country were called in, they were melted down, and then they were produced again uh, as on the right, with King William's head on and with milled edges so that forgery could be produced. Didn't actually work terribly well because a lot of people were confused and they were frightened and they didn't really want to hand in all their coins and so a lot of people were left with coins that, with the old coins that were, weren't really worth as much as their face value. And it's one of those typical situations where the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And as far as I can tell, Newton did pretty well out of it. But he was absolutely <coughs> determined to catch criminals. And he set up a whole network of informers. His, we can see his accounts, how, how much money he pays for people to go out in disguise and to set up spy networks. And he, several people got put in prison. Uh, so it's Newgate Prison where the conditions were appalling. Several people were hanged. And this is a comment by one of the people that he imprisoned, saying that Newton was a rogue, and if ever King James came again, he would shoot him. And the said ball made answer, God damn my blood, so will I, and though I don't know him yet, I'll find him out. So there are a lot of people in London who really, really didn't like him. And every year, there was a thing called the Trial of the Picks. And if you go up in the gallery upstairs, you can see this gold assay plate. Um, this actual one from 1707. And that was a sort of gold standard. And the trial of the picks was to make sure that the mint was putting as much gold into its coins as it said it was, that the mint wasn't defrauding the nation by uh, producing substandard coins. And so they collected samples of coins throughout the year, and then once a year there was a big ceremony and a boat 
barge full of coins was rowed up the Thames from the tower, from the wharf at the tower, up to Westminster. And then uh, they all went into Westminster Hall and there was an independent jury who measured all the gold content of the coins and decided whether or not it matched up to the gold in that assay plate. And that particular assay plate that the Science Museum shows is 1707, and that was when everything went wrong uh, because the gold assayers said that there wasn't enough gold in the coins. And Newton got, there was a major fight. Newton got very, very, very angry about it. And this is when his scientific expertise came in. And he carried out the experiments himself. And there's a little furnace, it's called a cupellation furnace, and it's for refining ores at high temperature. And that's upstairs, and that was what he used. And his diagnosis was, if this aquafortis, that's nitric acid, if the nitric acid be poured off and fresh aquafortis be poured on, and, then, and this is a process that has to be done iteratively. And he says, and a third water will leave it still finer and a fourth still finer, but assay, mas assay masters and refiners proceed no further than to two waters. So what he's saying is that the assayers didn't carry out their tests properly, and if they'd gone on, they would have found out that Newton was right and they were wrong. Uh, people recently have done tests on all the gold, and actually Newton was probably wrong. But anyway, he, 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 won, the, he won the battle anyway. So I'm going to show you a picture which some of you might find a bit distressing. It's a modern photograph of illegal gold mining in Ghana, uh, which used to be the Gold Coast, and I imagine that this is what the conditions were like in Newton's time. So this was, this was how the gold was being produced to send to England to put in our coins. And as I said, Newton himself wasn't involved in the slave trade, but he was master of the mint. He made sure he got the lowest possible prices from all the Africans who were working like this. He was paid a fee for every coin that was minted, one reason why he got so rich. And he invested in the South Sea Company and also in the East India Company, so he benefited from his investments in global trading. And I'm going to tell you now also how he benefited scientifically from that global training, trading network. So these are some of the trade routes around the, around the world in this period, in the 18th century. And when he was revising the Procipia, that's his big book on gravity, when he was revising the original version for a second and then for a third edition, he wanted to make lots more measurements of the tides. He needs to make corrections. And he collected measurements of, uh, of the tides from all over the world. And the best way to do that was to take advantage of these existing trade routes and to get information from people who were stationed in the different trading ports around the world. So there are about 30 locations from where he solicited information. So this is, this is his own copy. When he was doing the revisions, he took a copy of the first edition of the Principia, and then he unbound it so he had separate leaves. And then between each printed sheet, he put in a blank sheet of paper. So that's and this blank sheet of paper here on the right is where he wrote in all his corrections. And this book is still in Cambridge University Library. So he put in lots of corrections so that uh, for the second and the third edition. So what's now revered as the world's greatest book on physics incorporated information that had been gleaned from British colonizers 
who are both exploring and exploiting the globe. So I presented rather a different version from Newton than the one you're probably familiar with. So I've sort of finished by just sort of wondering briefly how Newton himself would have liked, would like, have liked to be remembered. So on the left, there he is under his apple tree. And this was a story that he told four times to four different people very shortly uh, in the couple of years before he died. So he, whether or not this mythological story of the apple is true, that obviously he wanted to be remembered in that way. The picture on the right is the last portrait that he had painted of himself. And you can see he's wearing that crimson velvet coat that he liked so much. And he had this picture engraved for the third edition of the Principia, which was the uh, which was the edition that sold most widely and was distributed around Europe. But pictures never tell the whole truth about anyone. And this picture, in a sense, isn't the real Newton any more than any other. So there's an American, there it is in the engraving, there was an American visitor to the Royal Society and he wrote back to America. He was writing about this picture and he wrote... By all those who've seen him of late, as I did, bending so much under the load of years as that with some difficulty mounted the stairs of the Royal Society's room, that youthful representation will, I fear, this one, will, I fear, be considered rather as an object of ridicule than respect and much sooner raise pity than esteem. So he, that's not really, according to this American man, it's not how Newton appeared at the time. So this is just a small selection of some of the ways that he chose to have himself portrayed during his lifetime, you know, during the last 30 years of his life, in fact. So, I mean, that sort of collection of pictures, he probably paid a few hundred thousand pounds to collect all of those, all of them. And so my account's different from the ones that you're familiar with, and all of these are rather different from one another. And the point that I'm trying to make is that there is no right or wrong version of Isaac Newton. But on the other hand, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the one that I've chosen to present to you tonight. Thank you.